Welcome to this throwback edition of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, where we remember the past and choose to repeat it. As you may have noticed, this is not Jay. I'm Dion, one of the producers on the show. You may know me from our insightful and often hilarious members-only bonus shows. Going forward, Aaron and I will be helping Jay scour the archives to find past episodes that remain relevant to our present situation. Today's episode was originally published on November 1st, 2016. And I wanted to play it now because our next episode will be talking about the many trials and tribulations of yours and everyone's favorite president, Donald John Trump. This throwback episode specifically deals with trying to understand why so many felt such a strong connection to Trump, which unfortunately, seven years later, is just as important to understand now as it was then. Even after multiple unprecedented criminal indictments with presumably more to come, Trump is still the favorite to win the Republican nomination for the 2024 presidential campaign. Going back and listening to this episode from 2016, just before Election Day, I was struck by just how many of the reasons given for support of Trump then have either remained the same or gotten worse. If you'd like a little added context before our upcoming Trump Trials episode, we just reposted an episode titled January 6th Insurrection Hearings, Everyone Knew the Lie Was a Lie. So you can think of today's episode as part two of a non-linear narrative trilogy. Sources for today's episode include Democracy Now!, the Nation, Bill Moyers and Conversation, Economic Update, This is Hell, and the United States of Anxiety, which has since been renamed Notes from America. Today, we spend the rest of the hour with the famed sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild. She spent much of the last five years with some of Donald Trump's biggest supporters researching her new book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. It has just been nominated for an American for an American Book Award. Uh, congratulations, Arlene. So talk about why you wrote this book. You're a professor at University of California, Berkeley, a sociologist. What brought you to Southern Louisiana? Well, five years ago, I, I felt we were already uh, moving uh, far apart and the right was growing. And I was in an enclave um, a geographic enclave, a media enclave, electronic enclave. We're all in enclaves. And I figured I want to get as far out of my enclave as I possibly could. I'm Berkeley, California, teach sociology. Where's the opposite end? I thought, okay, the right is growing in the south. So, south. Uh, it's growing among whites. Okay, whites. Um, older evangelical Okay, older evangelical, although not not all uh, were evangelical. And where's the super South? And I looked at um, uh, 2012, how many whites voted for Obama? In California, it was half. In the South as a whole, as a whole region, it was a third. And in Louisiana, it was 16%. I thought, super south. Okay, that's where I want to go. So, as luck would have it, I had one contact there, and I took it from there. In the end, over five years, um, I interviewed 60 people. 40 were Tea Party uh, enthusiasts. And what I really did was want to climb an empathy wall. I wanted to take my own political alarm system off and actually try and see how it felt to be them. Um, and actually, you know, I had an interesting 
experience with uh, one of the first women I met. She was a gospel singer in a Pentecostal church, very friendly, outgoing. I met her at Republican Women of Southwest Louisiana meeting. She was across the table. She said, I love Rush Limbaugh. I thought to myself, I should talk to her. I, I don't know why. I, I'm interested. I'm curious. So at Sweet Teas the next day, she said, oh, I love Rush Limbaugh because he hates feminazis. Okay, took a little while. And I, I said, well, what is feminazi? What? And, and, well, it's those feminists, you know, that are hard and tough and mean and ambitious. I thought, well, I don't like hard, tough, mean people either, you know, thinking that. And then she said, uh, um, has it been hard to hear what I'm saying? I thought, well, she's, she's looking back at me. And I told her, actually, no, it's not, because I have my alarm system off. And I'm, I'm trying to find out what life feels like to you. So, and then she said, you know, I do that sometimes. And then we had that actually in common. And then she explained, you know what I really like about Rush Limbaugh? He seems to defend me against all the liberal media that think I'm a redneck, that I'm backward, that I'm Southern, that I'm uneducated, uh, that uh, uh, I'm uh, homophobic, racist, uh, sexist, and, and uh, thanks for coming. So it was an amazing experience, and I met some very interesting, complex people that don't fit the deplorable category, but are complex each in their own, and that in many ways might have a lot of affinity with the left, if we could only cross well, that bridge. And the key to your book is the the profiles that you draw of uh, well half a dozen people uh, there who are mm -hmm. quite different and all fascinating. Let, let's start with the one that was the most fascinating to me is a man named Lee Sherman who once worked right. for a Louisiana chemical plant. This part of southwestern Louisiana is uh, one of the most polluted counties in the in, in the country. Tell us about uh, Lee Sherman's story. I will. And, you know, I just saw Lee three days ago because after the book came out, the first thing I did was to go back to the people I wrote about and put on a dinner and uh, get together. It was really great. Lee was a uh, began as a Democrat, actually, and came down. He's a pipe fitter and a pipe fixer, and he worked for Pittsburgh Plate and Glass. It's now called the Axial Plant. And his job was to fix leaks, and he had some very scary moments. This is dangerous work because in the pipes that he fixes is um, ethylene dichloride and vinyl chloride and hydrochloric acid, extremely toxic, if valuable chemicals. So one day his boss came to Lee and said, we have a special job for you which is at night, out of view of the public, want you to take this so-called tar buggy that has toxic waste from the day's activities and want you to roll that buggy to the edge of the water, 
turn the valve and put that toxic waste into public waterways. And he did that twice a day. He said he felt personally guilty, but it was what his boss told him to do. Then uh, he became ill in his exposure to these chemicals. He, he couldn't walk. And the company put him on medical disability. And then it fired him for absenteeism. Ah. So he did not love his company. And a lot of these people who are Tea Party or Trump people, it's not that they love, you know, the private sector or the companies they work for. Often they've been very ill-treated. Well, a few years later, there was a fish kill that, as you can imagine, with all this toxic pollution, the turtles were turned blind and would remain on the rock and die, oh. uh, not being able to see their food, and fish would flip and flop. Animals fell dead. Finally, there was the uh, the government, state government, uh, declared a fish advisory. In other words, consumers were to limit their consumption of these contaminated fish. The Then the fishermen and the re restaurateurs thought, there goes my livelihood. This is terrible. The state must be bad, must have done something trying to shut us down. And there was a huge meeting with a thousand fishermen protesting, you know, the big bad government, blaming it automatically. And then Lee Sherman got up on the stage and held a handmade sign that said, I'm the one that dumped it in the river. Oh. Then suddenly you could hear a pin drop, you know, oh, wait a minute, maybe it isn't the government, maybe this company asked this guy to do it, and he's he's fessing up. So that really turned things around. And now Lee has retired, and he's been an environmentalist, part of a community doing great work uh, trying to get some regulation of the polluters. And uh, he's a member of the Louisiana Tea Party, and he's planning to vote for Trump. And Trump, the first thing he wants to do, he's unclear on many of his goals, but clear on this one, is to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency. I'm here to see if we can step out of our Stone Age brain for a few minutes while we talk about politics. What's that? You're insulted? You don't have a Stone Age brain? That's what you think. As you're about to hear, part of us is perpetually Pleistocene. Our roots wind back two and a half billion years to hairy-faced ancestors with thick hands and short stubby fingers wrapped around big clubs that will carry them from the cave as they head out for another day of hunting and gathering. It's true. There's a little bit of the primitive in all of us, and more than a little bit in many of us. And that's why Rick Schinkman is sitting across from me at this very minute. That's right. Rick Schinkman, the historian, editor and publisher of the indispensable website, History News Network. That's where I often begin my day, after, of course, checking in with BillMoyers.com. History News Network is rich in the perspectives of the past that help us see more clearly the politics of the present. 
Rick Shipman is a scholar of the American voter. In 2008, he published a book titled Just How Stupid Are We? Facing the Truth About the American Voter. And now, as another presidential campaign unfolds like a runaway circus parade, his new book couldn't be more timely. Jot down the title, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Rick Chinkman, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Were you surprised, have you been surprised, that Donald Trump has been so able to play on the fears of the American voter? Uh, no, you know, I was really, uh, shocked by the, uh, popularity of Bernie Sanders. But when Donald Trump came along down that escalator back in June at Trump Tower and he started talking about the outsider, basically these, uh, Mexican immigrants who were coming across the border without, uh, proper papers, I thought, this guy has got a chance. Um, I didn't think he would go all the way. Uh, I'm surprised by that. But I was not shocked that he found an audience for his message. Two story. Speaking of an audience, I walked into the grocery store yesterday near my apartment. The stock manager sidled up to me in the bread section and said, what a circus, what a circus, referring, obviously, to the New York primary. I had hardly got the words. Seriously, I'd hardly got the words Donald Trump out of my mouth before he interrupted me. That Trump is something, he said. He tells it like he is, and he's right, you know. Both political parties have stacked the deck against guys like me. And then he paused, and he said, but nobody pays any attention if I say it. I mean, is that his Stone Age brain speaking? That is his Stone Age brain speaking. So the Stone Age brain is the brain that developed during the Pleistocene. The Pleistocene is the long ice age. It lasted two and a half million years, and that's when the human brain was mainly evolving. We're still evolving as human beings. We don't, we haven't stopped evolving. We are continuing to evolve. But it was during that period that we mainly evolved, and we evolved to address the problems of hunter-gatherers, uh, who lived during that period. I give a talk on this. Uh, I just was uh, up at Sarah Lawrence and uh, talking to a bunch of students, and I show them a video clip of a uh, Trump voter who uh, CNN put on the air, and she points with both hands to her brain, and she says, Donald Trump is in my brain. He knows what I'm thinking. I watch the TV. My, my president comes on the TV, and he lies to me. I know he's lying. He lies all the time. I don't believe any one of them, not one. I believe Donald. I'm telling you, he says what I'm thinking. He actually doesn't know what you're thinking. He knows what you're feeling. And that's what an awful lot of politics is. And when a politician talks anger and they talk fear, they are mainlining, just like a heroin addict, going straight for the most sensitive parts of the brain because fear and anger are those emotions that we really relate to. And when a politician engages and indulges people's fears and their angers, they seem really authentic. That's why Donald Trump seems so authentic to so many millions of people, because these emotions are so strong and powerful. Why, why are anger and fear so paramount in the Stone Age brain? So for people who are very sensitive to anger and fear, apparently, uh, our evolution proves it, that was a, uh, a habit of thinking that contributed to their 
survival. They'll take more precautions uh, than somebody who doesn't hear the alarm go off, right? Exactly. So there's something called the false alarm uh, bias. So what happens is uh, our brains are like good uh, detectors in your home that are looking for gas or for something else, some sign of fire. And Corona they're on oxide. Yeah. Exactly. So they're on a hair. Burglars. Exactly. Burglars. So they're on a hair trigger alert. They just detect a little bit and all of a sudden they start blaring. Well, our brain comes with a similar mechanism and that is to help protect us from danger. So the people who are going to more be more likely to survive a dangerous attack are were those who would be able to be sensitive to when a dangerous attack was coming. So when Donald Trump is attacking Mexican immigrants or Muslims just trying to uh, come visit the United States, he is activating this deep-seated cognitive bias that we have, which is the false alarm uh, bias. We want to make sure that we respond to a fire alarm. And if it's a false alarm, that's okay, because so the fire alarm goes off, everybody gets excited, they go out on the sidewalk, and then they come back in five minutes later. So, meh, it's okay. But if you miss a fire alarm, oh my gosh, you're really, really in trouble. So we've got this bias that basically says we're going to react to the fire alarm, even if we're going to err on the side of better be safe than sorry. And when Donald Trump and these other politicians activate that bias, what happens is it swamps critical thinking. We have higher order cognitive functions and we are able to evaluate the world as it is and not give in and surrender to these automatic responses. But when a politician activates that response, it's very, very difficult in the moment to think clearly. And that's what these politicians are doing. Are you a defense financial manager looking to invest in your career? Attend PDI, the Professional Development Institute in Phoenix, Arizona, May 29th to 31st. PDI is the premier annual training event for the DFM community. Register today at PDI2024.org. Early bird rates end April 30th. Early, talk about the man you met whose whole community was swallowed by a sinkhole um, from a drilling disaster. There was a man born actually on a plantation, son of a plumber, a fifth of seven, and uh, he spent most of his adulthood working for the oil industry. Big Tea Party guy doesn't like government. It should be down to 5% of what it is in his view. He loved fishing, loved hunting, loved nature, and he lived in a place called Bayou Corn. And what happened was there was a, uh, a company, Texas Brine, that drilled a hole into, uh, it, it, the bottom of the bayou and, and, uh, disrupted an underlying salt dome. So it was like pulling the plug on, uh, a, uh, on the bayou, the water went down, 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 down. Hundred-year-old cypress trees went falling down and were sucked in. And then this methane gas uh, infused mud came up, started as a small, uh, you know, house lot size thing. It's now 37 acres of, of toxic mud. This man who told me, you know, government got in the way of, of community. He loved community. 
And now Texas Brine, uh, his company, unregulated, insufficiently regulated, had caused the loss of his community. And he's Tea Party. So I ask him, gosh, you know, don't you, don't you want a regul, a good regulation? And why are you voting for Donald Trump, whose one clear plan is to abolish the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, I, I don't get it. And he, um, he, he said this about, uh, the government being a giant marginalization machine, but he said one thing else that I think we. But didn't he blame the company? Well, I kept asking him, what about Texas? Brian, aren't you mad at them? He said, yes, I'm mad at them, but I'm more mad at this state. And there's a reason for that, that I didn't know and discovered. What's really happening in Louisiana, which I think it, it may exaggerate uh, what's happening in a lot of states, is that um, the oil companies really dominate the state. The state is a servant to oil and petrochemical industry. And the state is saying, oh, please come and settle here in Louisiana, not Texas. Uh, we will give you $1.5 billion in incentive pay, incentive uh, uh, benefits. With that money, these companies make a donation to the Audubon Society and to a bird sanctuary. And so people think, oh, the company is so generous. And look what good things the company is doing. Plus, it's offering us jobs, although not too many jobs. These are highly automated plants that import a lot of skilled labor. And so um, the company looks good. Meanwhile, the state is doing the bidding of the companies. It is not a regulated state, but there are regulators who are not doing their job. So in a way, the state had become like the complaint clerk for the companies. It was doing the dirty work for the companies. It was saying, well, we're, you know, you deserve to be regulated, but it doesn't do it. So the Mike Chefs of, of Louisiana were saying, why am I paying taxes to a state not, that's not doing its job? And so a social logic links together with a personal one, because you've got people that two, two decades, they haven't had a raise, their wife is working, they're working overtime, owe money to the bank, and they're thinking, how can I get that American dream when I'm stalled? Let me get some tax money, since they're not doing the job anyway. That's a second, it's another reason he, he was down on the state. story is, is a story that feels true. And it's, you take out facts, you take out judgments, it's just what feels true. And the deep story of the right, and by the way, we have a deep story of the left, the deep story of the right is you're waiting in line, and uh, as in a pilgrimage, and the top of the line is the American dream. And you're waiting in line. Line is not moving, hasn't moved in a long time. You feel a strong sense of deserving. You have a work life like Lee Sherman I was just describing. You know, it's been tough. 
And people, I ask them, well, did you get any vacation? Well, I got one week vacation, sick time and vacation time combined for the first five years of my place of work, two weeks for the second five years. I mean, people love to fish and hunt, yeah. and they, they're not getting any time. So they're waiting in line with a sense of deserving. And then they see, what do they see? They see someone cutting ahead. Well, what's that? Who's that? Well, that's a black person under affirmative action who's getting access to jobs that used to be reserved for whites. And who else is cutting that? Well, that would be women. Now, affirmative action, getting access to jobs used to be reserved for men. And who else? Well, that's immigrants and refugees. And even the endangered pelican it seems to be ahead of them because the government cares about it, but not me. And then they see in this deep story, there's uh, Barack Hussein Obama should be impartially uh, uh, supervising the line of waiters for the American dream. And it's going, yoo-hoo, hey, to the line cutters. And they think, well, he's a line cutter too. How did he get to Columbia? He had a single mother. They weren't rich. And Harvard, my God. And so they come to believe that he is sponsoring them. He is their president. And they are strangers in their own land and not represented, and not seen. They feel unacknowledged. And then they see someone ahead of the line turn around and said, oh, you stupid southern redneck. And that's it. That, then they snap. Then they say, wait a minute. So liberals and the, the, the whole establishment is is all making the government into a giant marginalization machine. And that's the third reason that the state, they're giving up on the state. doesn't look like it's their state. It's oil state. It's the line cutter state. It's the state of the north. And they think, who else is there? There's nothing. There's a, politics is a desert. And then who should come? along exploiting that distrust, in my view. His name is Donald Trump. Is that how they see him? As a rescuer, as someone who acknowledges them. The ancient knight on the white horse who's going to save them. Yes, they they see him as, uh, they're always saying, telling it like it is, because he he gets to critique and shamelessly shame all the line cutters, tacitly or overtly. And if you did a, a kind of an iconography of shame, the, uh, the things that come out of Donald Trump's mouth, it would be you know, shame of women, shame of blacks, shame of immigrants, shame, all except for white, blue-collar men. They would be in the center of the circle. They're not being shamed. And by the way, the right to food stamps and social uh, programs, he's not touching those either. So I think he's providing a shame-free avenue for whites, should they need them in their low-wage jobs, to supplement them. Uh, That would be, he's saving them from shame. They feel shamed. 
and that wrongly shamed because they are working tough jobs. So he's uh, paradoxically, uh, he who shames everyone is sort of carved out a little area of non-shame. And it's much like right-wing movements in Europe at this time, too. So cut out the competitors and hold on to some parts of the state for you. It's also true, isn't it, that um, that we don't like cognitive dissonance, that when we get these storms in our head, we get stressful and, and perturbed and, uh, and we want to run uh, from them. So cognitive dissonance is something we want to get rid of as soon as we experience it. And, and if we feel it, uh, we turn away. Sure. And this helps explain why uh, millions of people still believe that Barack Obama is a Muslim born in Kenya. It's incredible to any thinking person that anybody could believe that. But these people aren't thinking they are reacting and reacting to. Well, in their small circle, they're hearing from people suspicions about Barack Obama. Is he really an American? Isn't he really a Muslim underneath it all? And wasn't he born in Kenya? And they hear that and that plays into a narrative, a meta narrative, uh, metacognition that resonates with them. And they piece together all these little uh, bits of evidence that contribute to their feeling that he's not really entitled to be president of the United States, whether because he's black or because he's too liberal or whatever it is. And so they create this meta narrative in their head and everything that is consistent with that meta narrative, they wind up believing and everything that is inconsistent with it, that would give them cognitive dissonance if they were to try to hold that thought in mind, in addition to the other thoughts, they get rid of. They get rid of it. I understand that. I would understand that better if you were talking about a, a, a thimble full of voters. But as you point out in political animals, uh, 43% of the Republicans believe that about Barack Obama, that he is a Muslim not born in America. Yeah, that's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. It's millions and millions of people. So uh, eight years ago, I wrote a book called Just How Stupid Are We, as you mentioned. I was appalled by the statistics coming out during the Bush years that so many millions of people thought that we were invading Iraq out of revenge because Saddam Hussein had something important to do with 9-11. Now, there was no truth to that. But if we can't get the most basic facts right about the most important event of our time, 9-11, that says our democracy is in trouble. I went around the country trying to scream, hey, we have a 10 alarm fire, we have a 10 alarm fire. But I really couldn't get, did not get the attention of the media. Then Donald Trump came along and now everybody's saying, wow, we have a 10 alarm fire. It's like, okay, great. I no longer am Cassandra uh, shouting to the winds. People are paying attention to this promise. Is it uh, true that the warning we were talking about doesn't work if the person speaking believes his or her own lies? This is the key. When a politician, just like a used car salesman, believes their own lies, and most of the time they believe what they're saying, then our natural defense mechanism, our, our natural uh, McAfee for the brain, as I call it, uh, goes into uh, uh, somnolence. Uh, it, it goes asleep. asleep. Right. We need to feel that somebody is lying to us 
for our cheater detection system to work. We've got to, on some level, conscious and unconscious, sense that um, they're twitching, their voice is going higher, they're being a little bit nervous in what they're saying. If they're not giving off those signals, we believe what they're saying, unless we have co- access to contrary information that will help us say, oh, wait a minute, what he's saying is different. It's adverse to what I know to be true. Then that creates some dissonance, and then we have to deal with that. How do we know if the liar believes he's telling the truth? Well, it goes back to this perceptual salience. So everything that we know about a person, we bring all that information to bear when we're making an assessment about who they are. And if what they're telling us about who they are is adverse to what all that other information says, well, then there's a conflict. And now you're forcing the voter to have to make a choice between what they know and what you're telling them. And you know what? They are going to go with what they know. We privilege information that we already believe to be true. And when we hear contrary information to that, boy, it's got a uh, a high, that's a high hurdle for it to make before we'll change our opinion. This partisan brain you talk about, that, that I say ouch when you say that because none of us likes to think we have a partisan brain, particularly we journalists. We don't like that. We like to think we have a nonpartisan or at least a bipartisan uh, brain. But Trump's voters, have they not been ridiculed for their willingness to overlook his inconsistencies? And isn't that what all voters do once they become committed to a particular candidate? Yeah, exactly. When I was a college student at Vassar, um, I was a conservative back then, and I was a true blue conservative supporter of Richard Nixon. So I was there during uh, uh, the years of Watergate, and I stuck by him almost until the end, only two months before he finally resigned. I was one of those dumb 23% who still believe that guy's lies right up until almost near the end. And why was that? I was paying attention. I was reading the paper. I was watching the Watergate hearings. The next day, I would read in the newspaper the transcripts. I was studying this stuff, and still I stuck by Richard Nixon. It makes no sense in retrospect. I thought I was being a thinking voter, but I was actually not. I was using what Daniel Kahneman calls system one thinking. I was just reacting. I wasn't using higher order cognitive thinking, which is system two thinking, to where I I sit back and I question my own assumptions. That's what voters need to do. Second guess our automatic reactions. That's the main theme of the book. Don't trust your instincts. You were not alone because after Watergate, after the scandal broke, after all the exposés, and after millions of people knew that Richard Nixon was a crook, he was reelected. What's at work there? Once we commit to a candidate, we become engaged with that candidate. And we're no longer defending the candidate. We're defending our vote for that candidate. So once we make a commitment to a politician, it is very difficult for us to change our minds about that politician because it's no longer about the politician. At that point, it's about us. Politics in the end is always about the voters. It's not about the politicians. The media, I think, make a mistake in constantly talking about the politicians as if that's what matters in an election. But that's not what matters. What matters is the voters' response.
When it comes to uh, what you call the deep story, you write it, it when on the right. It was a story of unfairness and anxiety, stagnation and slippage, a story in which shame was the companion to need, except Trump had opened a divide in how Tea Partiers felt this story could end. What do you mean? Because this, this is a really important part of your book. What do you mean by shame being the companion to need? Do you believe some level of shame leads people to believe in uh, the theory of the right wing and to believe in the idea of a weaker government that doesn't really provide the solutions that you might need. Yes. You know, the subtitle of my book is Anger and Mourning, Mourning as in Sadness and Loss. And together with that, if I had more room, would be shame and fear. Uh, You can see the anger, you know, at these rallies and so on. but what you don't see is the sadness and the shame, which is what you come to see when you cross the empathy wall. There, there's a sense of loss, and their families are very, very troubled, you know, and, they're, um, and they don't see a raise in pay in the next, haven't had one for 20 years, you know. So uh, um, there's a sense of loss. Where are we going? Does anybody see me? Does anybody care? And um, shame comes into it because in this situation, they've become very stoical. Oh, I can take it. Give me any bad news. I can take it. And shame has become attached to the recipients of any kind of government aid. They, they feel that's a sign of uh, defeat and uh, shame. And it makes a man more like a woman and a white more like a black. And culturally, they've drawn a line there. And uh, so, I mean, that's to discuss. That's to discuss. You know, once you've gotten into a an atmosphere of respect, you can, you can ask about those things. For example, race. Now, here I am in Louisiana. Right, super red south. It's why I've gone. You know, I just want to really get. I'm talking to whites, and I ask about race, and uh, which they're terrified to talk about because they're sure some northerner is going to blame them for being racist. And that's the first thing I'll say. I know, you know, people you you hang out with your friends think that we're all racist down here, but it's not true. And they all said, no, I'm not a racist. And then I asked them, what is a racist? Well, it's someone that uses the N-word um, and hates blacks. And I don't use the N-word, they'll say, and I don't hate blacks. So uh, with that definition, yeah, I mean, few are racist. But, you know, you and I would say there's there's a whole structure to it, you know, who 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 gets to rent a Trump Tower, you know, apartment in the 1970s, Um, and that that's, uh, you know, those practices count as racism, too. But uh, they would say, like this, again, the guy in the boat, uh, Tea Party Trump, he said, you know, uh, I was born on a sugar plantation. He showed me, the book begins where he's showing me where he was born, in a renovated slave house uh, with his uh, six brothers and sisters, uh, son of a plumber who worked on that uh, sugar plantation, as it was then called, 
uh, and off. Anyway, that guy says, you know, I'm a reformed bigot. He said, you know, in the 60s, I would um, I would use the N-word, but now uh, I'm incensed. If somebody uses that on my Facebook page, I'd tell them to get off. But I don't like people using R-word, redneck. And then I ask him, just to give you a picture of the mentality here, I ask him, what was it like when your high school was integrated uh, and... Um, in Donaldsonville, Louisiana. He said, well, in my sophomore year, there was one black. In my uh, senior year, the the class was half black. And then I asked him, did you make any new friends? And there was a very long pause. And he said, you're making me think. (laughs) Okay, if you get to that kind of space, where he feels free to say that, you know, and I feel free to receive that as his description of himself. I think you're in a new space between right and left. You know, it isn't just doing battle, but he, he, I opened up a question in his mind that I don't think he'd been there before, but did it respectfully. I think that's the way that... Um, the left needs to get out of its corner, needs to stop being uh, so inward-looking, and needs to put pressure on the Democratic Party, which indeed has been asleep at the wheel with all of the new challenges of globalization, of offshoring and automation, and what they have meant for uh, blue-collar men, especially in America. I do not think the Democratic Party speaks to those issues, and I'm not surprised that a movement has risen up that is asking to have its issues spoken to. And uh, unless the progressives can move the Democratic Party in uh, substantially, I think we're going to see a growing right. And we've seen it elsewhere around the world. It's happening all through Europe. the things I think a lot of us are trying to understand in this election and probably before that is how is it possible that this group of people who support Donald Trump, they sound like they're doing relatively well financially. They are white people. How do they end up feeling like they are the people who are being aggrieved right now in American society? It's almost like they're in some kind of alternative universe and I cannot wrap my head around it. Let's for a moment go into their cars, driving home from work, and listen to uh, Rush Limbaugh, the conservative talk radio king. I want to play a clip from the first year of the Obama presidency, Uh, and Rush Limbaugh is doing a show, and he turns on a parody song to the tune of Puff the Magic Dragon. Barack the Magic Negro lives in D.C. The L.A. Times, they call him that cause he's not authentic like me. So, wow, I cannot imagine how anybody could listen to that and think anything other than 
wow, that's pretty racist. And in fact, it caused enormous controversy at the time. That's not what the millions of conservative talk radio show listeners heard, nor therefore what a large swath of America heard, because what they heard was Limbaugh blasting the mainstream media. And the reason is that this parody song was created after the LA Times published a column that argued that whites liked Obama because he was non-threatening. What Rush would talk about for the weeks that this controversy raged was how the mainstream media was making this huge deal out of this little song that he had commissioned. So suddenly it doesn't become a debate with Barack Obama. It doesn't become a debate with black people. It doesn't become a debate with those of us who are black and felt deeply offended by it. It becomes a debate with the media instead. This is, right. this is sort of the escaped hatch from it being racist. It's about how the mainstream media, which is also a stand-in for the establishment, dismisses them, ignores them, and doesn't get them, and also only listens to them out of context. And so this is the foundation, really, upon which Donald Trump's campaign has been built, is that these ideas that I hear you describing, we're hearing this over and over and over again when people say, hey, you're not listening to what Donald actually has to say here. That's right. And when you hear him rail against political correctness, which for many Americans, they thought that term had died many years ago. They didn't know that was still a thing. For conservatives who listen to talk radio, that is still very much a thing. It embodies so much of their beef with the way they perceive the direction that this country is going in. Trump may be facing off against Hillary Clinton, who has, by the way, provided fodder for talk radio for a quarter century. But at the same time, he's seen as taking the fight for the first time in a real way to this so-called mainstream media establishment. So what are the grievances with the mainstream media? We said that their views are taken out of context so often. What else? Part of the beef with the mainstream media is we decide the words that can be used to call black people, for example. No, now we don't call them black people. Now we call them African-Americans. These things are seen as a creeping march toward fascism, toward thought control. There's a conservative talk radio host in Philadelphia, Rich Zioli, and he and I often talk about this divide. He says that the mainstream media ignores the voices of Black conservatives, for example, because we don't want to legitimize the fact that there could be blacks who have other ideas that aren't just reflexively liberal. There is a, uh, a real industry of people who go to journalism school to become journalists and then pursue this career of reporting the news. And I believe that most of them do it for ideological reasons. And that's not a bad thing. Don't misunderstand me. I think a lot of them go into journalism because they want to be Woodward and Bernstein. They want to uncover the truth. They want to be a, a check on the government. But because they go into it with that perspective, they are naturally bringing a bias to, with them. That bias he's describing is sort of a bias to side with the underdog, which you know, you could say is a legitimate criticism or maybe just in a legitimate analysis of journalism. The other bias, though, he says, is toward controversy. And that's probably undisputed, but he says it really harms conservatives. So he noted a recent interview he did with Ivanka Trump, where they got a little bit into the details of her father's childcare proposal. And that interview did not really make much of a ripple 
in the mainstream media. However, that same week, one of his colleagues, conservative talker Chris Tagal, on the same station in Philadelphia, interviewed Ivanka's brother, Donald Trump, and that caused a huge to-do in the mainstream media because Donald Trump Jr. seemed to make a Holocaust reference. The media has built her up. They've let her slide on every you know, indiscrepancy, on every lie, on every you know, DNC uh, you know, game trying to get Bernie Sanders out of the thing. I mean, if Republicans were doing that, they'd be warming up the gas chamber right now. There you have him again, um, trashing the mainstream media for supposedly being in the bag for the Democrat, but also making what to uh, others might seem like a very insensitive and possibly anti-Semitic remark talking about the media, which is often criticized by anti-Semitic Trump supporters as being dominated by Jews. So this did get um, a good deal of coverage from the mainstream media for a couple of days, and that really bothered Rich Zioli. That became the story for two days of the cycle. And who can you blame for that but the mainstream media for focusing on on a comment like that and then blowing it up in such a degree and ignoring a very substantive interview with with his sister who's talking about actual policy? What does Zioli say to the fact that for many people, it is also a substantive problem and a substantive story if someone is making Holocaust references towards anybody. I can't speak for him directly on that, but I will tell you that these talk show hosts are provocateurs, obviously, uh, but they really despise uh, mainstream media's role as the guardians of political correctness. And they think that jokes are turned into controversies uh, in order to provide political cover for Democrats. Limbaugh calls us, by the way, uh, drive-bys. Uh, as in drive-by shooters, because we don't listen to conservatives within context. We just hear uh, a parody song like Barack the Magic Negro or some sort of offhanded comment about a gas chamber, which for the record, uh, Donald Trump Jr. said was referring to the use of a gas chambers in America for capital punishment purposes, not uh, to exterminate millions of people. Not for nothing, the drive-by shooting reference is troubling to me as well. And, uh, you know, this is the thing is, they stack up a lot of this. Some of us feel like where there's smoke, there's fire. There are a great many of these controversies to be had. There are many instances, and I have a bunch here of Rush Limbaugh uh, talking about race in ways that, frankly, make me feel uncomfortable. Here's him disparaging the slaughter, for example, of Native Americans. And what is the Holocaust? 90 million Indians? Only 4 million left? They all have casinos. What's to complain about? He once made a slavery joke while musing about the possibility of former New York Governor David Patterson, who is black, appointing someone to replace Congressman Eric Massa. So David Patterson will become the Massa, who gets to appoint whoever gets to take Massa's place. So for the first time in his life, Patterson's going to be a Massa. Interesting. Interesting. I don't even know what to do with that. <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to that. that. I mean, this is the kind of thing. It piles up and piles up. And for those of us who are on the receiving end of these jokes, it starts to feel like they've got, frankly, an obsession with race. See, they say that the other side is obsessed with race. They say that with a black president and a black attorney general, 
and uh, Latina on the Supreme Court. Racism doesn't exist the way liberals and Al Sharpton and Black Lives Matter and the mainstream media wants us to believe. So they see speeches about black people getting shot by cops or policies of affirmative action and education as just a craven way to get black people to vote Democratic. The days of them not having any power are over, and they are angry, and they want to use their power as a means of retribution. That's what Obama's about, gang. He's angry. He's going to cut this country down to size. He's going to make it pay for all this multicultural uh, uh, mistakes that it has made. And what I hear in that is, ironically, an identity politic. He has created this world in which where you can go and you can develop a racial identity that is shared, that feels aggrieved. (laughs) All the things that he's blaming people of color and liberals for, they are doing in this space. Right. His listeners see a rapidly changing America. Maybe they worked at a plant that moved to Mexico, for example. And that one perhaps isolated incident can be put into larger context and given greater meaning when Limbaugh explains that there are larger forces going on that are trying to change the America that his listeners grew up in. Which again brings us back to actual events that occur and people in this identity politic and in this land have a whole different set of facts and understanding about the things that actually happened than other people in the country have. That's right. And often those facts are incorrect and often they are conspiracy theories. Last year, this is one example that didn't get much attention and it's not incredibly outrageous, but I think it serves to illustrate something. Last year, Limbaugh chided Michelle Obama, he calls her Michelle Obama, not sure why, for a speech she gave at the opening of the new Whitney Museum in New York City. She said museums and concert halls just don't welcome non-white visitors, especially children, the way they welcome white people. A little bit more from this. Limbaugh said the first lady was acting as an aggrieved victim. Everything has to be about race with these people. And, I, you know, it, it, we, were, we were supposed to be post-racial with the election of Obama. We're supposed to have put all that behind us. His election was supposed to mean something. It was supposed to signify that we had overcome and, and gotten past the original sin of slavery. And instead, as I knew would be the case, it's gotten worse by design. He went on to say that maybe black people don't go to museums because it's not in their cultural upbringing, because maybe they think it's too white. You know, the the problem here is that I looked up what Michelle Obama said. There are so many kids in this country who look at places like museums and concert halls and other cultural centers, and they think to themselves, well, that's not a place for me. And she made no broad statement about white people. She never mentioned race. Instead, she talked about poor kids not having access to museums. But Limbaugh heard race, even though she never said it. And then he grossly misquoted her. It's one of many conspiracy theories, allegations that float around on talk radio. And that really seeps into the consciousness of many Americans. Uh, And that includes the slander that the president is a Kenyan Muslim. 
to the allegation that I've heard so often through the years that the government, the federal government, gives free cell phones to poor people. When, when you defame the media as being filled with liberal liars, which is what talk radio has done very successfully, anything you say to replace their assertions flies as fact. And certainly through the years, the media has gotten it wrong. And certainly you can make an argument that there are too many left-leaning people in the media. I've seen surveys that show that most reporters are liberal and that's you can assert that, but the blanket defamation of all mainstream media, whatever that might be, as being bogus, creates a space where this stuff can grow. And a lot of the conspiracy, a lot of it deals with race. This goes further. Limbaugh said a couple of years ago that he wouldn't be surprised if Obama instigated race riots. Because that's part of the program here. And next up, they're going to be race riots, I guarantee. And the race riots are part of the plan that this regime has. That's next. Glenn Beck, another conservative talk radio powerhouse, he has suggested something similar. I told you over a year ago that the only thing this president would have left in the end was race. That's all he would have. And they would do everything they could to start race riots because it's what the weather underground said they wanted. So when you start to hear some of that, you get an understanding of, well, maybe not understanding, but you can see the path that people have walked along to get them to see Black Lives Matter protests as violent, deliberate riots that the liberals and Obama in particular have encouraged. That's right. But talk radio isn't alone in this anymore. 20 years ago, a political operative named Roger Ailes founded Fox News and turned it into not only the most watched cable news station in the country, but also the biggest microphone in conservative America. Fox became the driving force behind Republican foreign and domestic policy. Like talk radio, it wraps itself in traditional American values. And like talk radio, it doesn't always propagate In facts, Ailes gave businessman Donald Trump for several years a weekly slot on the show Fox and Friends, the morning show, uh, where Trump talked up his concern of a phenomenon that we now know as birtherism. He could have been born outside of this country. Why can't he produce a birth certificate? And by the way, there's one story that his family doesn't even know what hospital he was born in. Yeah, I've I've heard that as well. Donald, before you go, what about uh, the mainstream media accounts of this dust up over the last week where they're trying to paint you as you know, the mayor of crazy town for bringing this up. Every time I talk about the birthers, I start off by saying, and it's very interesting, I was a great student at the best college in the country. You know, I want to let people know I'm a smart guy. Roger Ailes is gone from Fox News now and in fact has joined the Trump campaign. And in many ways, his campaign is just an outlet for conservative media. Absolutely. And then you think about what Trump's top issue is and what he has centered his campaign on, and that's immigration. And the rhetoric is so similar to the heated rhetoric we've heard on conservative talk radio through the years regarding immigration. Here's talk radio personality Michael Savage, who argued that tanks should be on the border and that immigrants bring in epidemics like bedbugs. How is it that for decades there were no bedbugs to speak of in New York City or anywhere else in America? And where did this epidemic suddenly come from? Is it a result of massive, massive 
waves of immigration from the third world? I guess, again, the facts aren't really at issue here. It's much more about being inside a certain kind of aggrieved identity group, that that's really what's happening here, is that they're building a narrative where you're part of this group, you've been left out, and you need to be concerned about that moving forward. There was a moment this summer, I was listening to Rush, and he really crystallized what this is all about in very similar words to the ones you just used. No matter where you turn, you can't escape this fact. If you are conservative, Republican, straight, and white, you are yesterday. You are so yesterday. You are so irrelevant. You are so unnecessary. The country is being taken from them, and we need to make America great again. Thanks for listening to another throwback episode plucked from the archives to give you context for today. For more like this, check the feed as this is a weekly feature of the show that's in addition to all of our new episodes. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave a voicemail or text at 202-999-3991 or email me to j at bestofleft.com. These episodes are remastered and produced by Dion Clark, Aaron Clayton, and myself. We also produce funny and informative bonus episodes along with Amanda Hoffman as thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships to the show. If you get value out of the show, we'd appreciate your support at bestofleft.com slash support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcasts app. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast with new episodes coming to you twice weekly thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.